Welcome to Expert Opinion, the branding business forum where leaders share their views, insights, and experiences from the world of B2B branding. And now, here's your host. Welcome to Expert Opinion. I'm Ryan Rikus, and today's show is focused on the importance of protecting your company's intellectual property. Today's guest is Diane Reed, partner at Kenobi Martins, one of the largest intellectual property law firms in the U.S. Now, many people don't realize the value IP has to a business today, but let me give you some insight. In 2015, 84% of the value of an S&P 500 stock is in its intangible assets, such as its IP, and not necessarily its tangible assets, such as real estate or equipment. And to give you a perspective, this number has risen substantially as it was only 17% in 1975. So in 40 years, it's increased 67%. And so I guess the bottom line is, if you'd like to increase the value of your business, you might want to listen to the insights that Diane will share with us today. So let me introduce Diane. Welcome to Expert Opinion. Thank you, Ryan. I'm very happy to be here. Well, we worked together with you and Kenobi Martins for many years now, and primarily in the area of developing and protecting branded assets, such as corporate names or product names, logos, taglines, and other IP. So to give our listeners a perspective of everything that you do, maybe you can give an overview of the other types of intellectual property that you work on as well. Sure, happy to do that. So, yes, in addition to working in connection with helping clients select a brand and protect that brand, um, I do a lot of work in the area of copyright, which protects artistic and other types of written expression. I also do a lot of intellectual property agreements, which is a very broad category of what we do here at Kenobi Martins, and that is it incorporates um, intellectual property licenses, product development agreements where two parties are contributing some type of intellectual property to put together a new product, uh, manufacturing agreements, distribution agreements, um, agreements where people are buying or selling their intellectual property. And then as a firm, we also do a lot of work in the patent area, but I myself don't practice in patents, so I won't even try to speak on patent law in this conversation. Okay. So pretty broad protection of a lot of different types of IP. So let me kind of get down to it right, right away from the beginning here. What's the biggest mistake companies make related to their IP? Um, yeah, and I can come up with a few. There are um, a lot of companies select a mark that either can't be protected at all or it's going to be very difficult to protect, either because the mark itself is inherently too descriptive of what the product is, and so it is not protectable under the law until it's been used for many, many years. Or they just pick a mark that's in a very crowded field with other companies that are very in a very similar or close business, and that's going to cost them a lot of money to continue to try to protect and potentially defend their use of that particular mark. You also see the um, the situation where somebody has been using a mark for a few years, but they've never done any clearance searching, and now they're in a position of being the recipient of a cease and desist letter telling them to stop using the mark because it's infringing on somebody else's rights. Um, not registering your trademark is another mistake that a lot of businesses make. Um, they're hesitant to spend the money, or they just don't think that they need to register their marks. And another category is 
people are not using their intellectual property properly. So they're misusing their own trademarks um, by using them for their kind of common, ordinary English meaning rather than as a brand name for their product or service. All right. Well, let's talk just a little bit about um, one of the topics you mentioned in the sense of wanting to protect your IP. Can you talk a little bit about first using the uh, the TM and then ultimately working with you to develop a um, Circle R or a formal registration mark? Yes. Yeah, so um, in the United States, it's not a requirement to register your trademark, although registration has um, some very significant benefits. But we are a common law country, and so we recognize what we call common law trademark rights, which you develop by using a trademark in commerce in connection with selling goods or offering services under that trademark. So from the moment you start using a trademark, you're entitled to use the TM symbol, which indicates to your customers and others that see your products, your advertising, that you are claiming rights in that word or those words as a trademark. You are not allowed to use the circle R until you've gone through the registration process with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and actually received a registration. At that time, you can stop using the TM and switch to the circle R, which indicates that you have, in fact, obtained a registration for your mark. Perfect. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, one of the areas that we work together real closely on, and that is developing corporate names and being able to formally um, secure them through a, um, a registered trademark. So we do this about five to ten times a year uh, when we're asked to rebrand and ultimately rename a company, and it's by far the toughest and most, at the same time, most rewarding work that we do. Uh, just because it's so difficult to find legally available names. So in most cases, going back to what you just mentioned, uh, our goal is to develop uh, always actually a, a defendable uh, and ownable name. But um, to get there, we typically have to look at two different routes to take, and that is one is a uh, developing a hybrid name where we're actually taking two fairly common words and combined together or uh, a real common approach is to development of evocative names that are really not even existing words at all, but rather they're created. They're based upon some level of um, background that gives it meaning, whether it's the, um, the form of, of Latin as the foundation behind it. But the nice thing about these type of names is that uh, they're legally available. Uh, the challenge is that they're very unusual and take a while to become accepted, first by our client and then ultimately by the marketplace. But once it has, it just becomes the new name for that particular brand, and it's very accepted. So you want to just talk a little bit about uh, that process and, and how you would advise counsel uh, or advise or counsel clients in determining uh, developing IP that ultimately can be protected. Yeah, and you, the numbers that you talked about at the beginning of this session about how many how much IP there is and how important it is to companies and how many companies are registering their trademarks, it is an incredibly daunting task when you're thinking, I've got to pick, pick a brand name that's going to resonate with my consumer group and I'm not going to be infringing on anybody else's rights because I don't want to spend all those legal fees defending my rights. So it's a difficult process. Um, but I love this question because it can really address the fundamental concepts about trademark protection. And so I'll try to break it down into some pieces that will really hopefully help 
people understand what their goals are in picking a trademark and how to achieve that goal. So the trademark law in the United States and in most countries is all about consumer protection. You're trying to help the consumer be able to identify the products that they like and the products that they don't like. And so that they'll also get some consistency that when they grab a, a tube of Crest toothpaste off the store shelves, they know what they're getting. Or when they go into a McDonald's, they know what they're getting. If we didn't have trademarks, you would never know what to expect each time you walked through that door of the hamburger shop. So you mentioned the types of trademarks that you like to work with in connection with your clients, where some of them are the very evocative names that are not existing words. Um, other words are maybe a combination of two known words, but they don't really have any particular meaning with respect to the goods or the services that your client is offering. And so that kind of, you've, you've sort of introduced what are the, um, the different types of trademarks. There's a, a scale that we use in the trademark field of potentially very, very strong marks on the one end and, and weaker marks on the opposite end of the scale. And so those marks that have no meaning and are, they, they're made up words, we call those fanciful trademarks. And those are potentially the strongest type of trademark, as you mentioned, because it's, it's a completely made up word. Nobody else is using it. Think of Xerox and Kodak and Google all made up words. The problem with selecting a fanciful word is that, one, it's very hard to come up with an unknown word that you're actually going to like the sound of it. It's also really hard to introduce that word to your consumers to the point where they will accept it and remember it and understand it. So there's just a higher barrier in educating the consumers, and that higher barrier means increased marketing and advertising expenses. And so some companies aren't going to want to undergo that. They, they want immediate recognition and acceptance of their trademark, so they'll steer away from these fanciful terms. The next category would be the, the existing words, but they don't have any particular meaning in relation to what your products are. And those are arbitrary terms, so think of Amazon an apple. Those are words that everybody can remember. They're familiar with the word, but they have no meaning with respect to what those companies are selling. And those are great types of trademarks. They can also be very potentially strong trademarks, but you're going to get into a category now where more people are likely to already be using apple in some other instances or you know, potentially other businesses using Amazon for their services. The next category is what we call the suggestive terms. And this is really kind of the sweet spot where most companies land in picking their trademarks. These are words that have some meaning with respect to the product that they're selling. Um, you and I were speaking earlier and you were asking about like the trademark essential products and how there are so many different essential marks and how can all of these coexist. That's the type of trademark where people like those marks because essential suggests to the consumer that they, they have to have this product. It's essential to me. I must have it. And what a great trademark that would be. But you're going to run into a landscape where a lot of other people are using very similar marks. So within that field, you know, to, to try to steer your client into what 
they can pick. They really need to just think about what they want their branding and their marketing to be. Do they want to be that one one mark, nobody else is ever going to use it and have that higher barrier to entry into the marketplace? Or do they want to go more towards the sweet spot and pick that very suggestive name where they're going to have a more crowded field and they're going to have to find a mark where they can fit in to others who are using similar marks by distinguishing that their their business is different enough from what other people are doing that the consumer is not going to be confused between the two marks and between the two companies. Great summary. I think that's fantastic. So. Uh, in these three options, fanciful, arbitrary, and suggestive, there's trade-offs. Um, it's easier to own the fanciful. Arbitrary is going to take some education. And suggestive, of course, is a sweet spot, but also it's very crowded from our experience. And so you basically have two challenges in this suggestive area. One is uh, you're in a crowded space, and you're going to also take marketing dollars to differentiate yourself from other like names. And then also we've experienced some challenge of actually getting the approval on those names as well because there are many other companies out there with similar names. So, uh, yeah, we were talking about Essential Products as one or MetLife's new consumer life insurance company, Bright House. I mean, there's all kinds of Bright Houses out there. So Mm -hmm. um, maybe you could give our listeners a viewpoint as to how does a firm, how does a company uh, actually get true protection around those names? Does it simply come down to their ability to have not, not have competition in those um, IC classes? And maybe you can explain the, uh, the concept of IC classes as well to our listeners. Okay. Yeah, happy to do that. Let me, let me address the, the crowded field first, and then we'll talk about the, um, the international classes. So, so the, exactly right. You, know, you look at a, a lot of marks and you do your clearance searching, and it comes back and it's telling you there are five or 10 or 15 other companies that are using that same word as all or part of their trademark for various goods and services. So going back to the idea that this is all about consumer protection, the government says, you know, we will grant you some exclusive rights in a trademark that you pick, but there's some conditions on that exclusive right. One, you have to be using the trademark in order to protect it. And two, you can only protect that trademark with respect to the goods and services that you are actually selling to consumers. And then that way the consumer is protected that you are not getting overbroad rights, and so that keeps other competitors out of the marketplace entirely if your rights are too broad. But it also um, gives you the, the protection that you need because the consumer's going to recognize your trademark and associate it with your products. So if I'm coming into the market and I want to use that same Bright House trademark, I look at it and I say, okay, there are five other companies that are using this. Let's say one is doing, I think one of them is production, film production, and another one is in some type of home alarm monitoring services, and another one is in the field of organic tomatoes. So as a consumer, if I see Bright House tomatoes, and I see Bright House film production, I'm probably not going to associate the two of those together or think that there's any connection between them. So I, as the consumer, am not harmed by both of them having exclusive rights to use the term Bright House in connection with the products and services that they each offer. 
and so that's how the, that's how the trademark law works that there is there are exclusive rights but there are limitations on them such that the consumer remains protected so each owner of that trademark can only enforce its rights and stop others from using the bright house trademark if they can show that the consumer is going to be confused by both companies using bright house as a trademark for their respective services so by adding that qualifier at the end, describing the category you're in, there's, it adds one layer of potential differentiation and protection. But we've also experienced some challenges in that, in that area as well. So, I mean, you have to really be sure that you can have a very substantial argument to, to demonstrate there is no confusion, right? Yeah, it is something that you, you really need to, as an attorney, I need to really make sure I understand my client's business. They might speak in some lingo and say, oh, yeah, we're just going to be doing some, you know, technology development services. And I think, oh, okay, that sounds great. But then you do your clearance searching and you see four or five other companies that are in this kind of tech business. They could be completely unrelated to one another and there would be no consumer confusion, or they may, in fact, really kind of be working in the same space and selling their services to the same types of companies or selling their products in the same marketing channels. And those are the instances where the consumer might be encountering both of the companies in a similar situation and might then be confused and think, oh, they must be related to one another. Mm-hmm. Or I, I bought my product from this company thinking I was buying it from the other company. So you really have to um, have a very good understanding of what what is the client's current business and what is their likely expansion going to be? And same thing with these other people who have already adopted a trademark. What business are they really in and are we going to have any overlaps in our trade channels, our consumer group? Um, you know, are we priced similarly? Are, we, are there any other similarities in what we're doing? And then the risk is going to go up that there's going to be a likelihood of confusion and you're going to be defending your right to use that mark. It may be you may not be able to adopt it or you might end up in an infringement dispute with the other party. Yeah, and you want to avoid both of those. Both not a, yes. You don't want to have to yes. spend money to defend yourself and also you never want to have to change your name based upon uh, finding out years down the road that you got an issue. So to give our listeners some stats on this, there's roughly uh, a half million new businesses opened every month in the U.S., 500,000. And so they all need a new name, but most small businesses don't think about the challenges of that or, or protecting it. And so little bit more background on that. There are 2 million active trademarks in the U.S. and mm-hmm. roughly 5,000 new applications each week on names. And the reality is more than 50% don't pass because they're just similar, too similar to another name and there will be a conflict. So um, lots of challenges out there in terms of developing a truly ownable IP that will uh, both protect you as well as avoid rights down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's not going to get any easier. I mean, as you mentioned, the, the barrier to entry into the market now is, is so low. I mean, people can just put together a website and start a new business, you know, almost by snapping their fingers. And it used to be much more difficult when most businesses were manufacturing companies or, you know, they had to figure out their what their product was going to be and where were they going to have it manufactured. 
Now with technology, everything's out there quickly. People are adopting trademarks. They're not doing clearance searching. Some of them are, and they're filing for trademarks and kind of grabbing up all the good names. So it, it just becomes more and more difficult. And, and I think in selecting a new trademark, you need to have that realistic understanding when you go into it that it's going to be really difficult to find a trademark that is the, the Xerox or the Kodak type trademark where there's nothing else like it. You're just going to have to to be flexible enough in choosing your mark so you get one that you think has a very reasonable risk assessment when you go into the market that you're not likely to have to change your name or have any infringement trouble. It may not have been your first choice, but it's a good choice for you and it's one with a lower risk. Well, that's what we always counsel our clients as well, is that um, a good mark is one that we can tell a story behind as well as it's legally available. And so, mm -hmm. as you know, working together, we've, we do a lot of the preliminary uh, trademark searches using the U.S. Patent Trademark Office as well as other methods, and then, and then we bring it to you with some level of assurance, but there's nothing like getting your approval, your opinion on the usability of this mark. So. On that topic, can you speak a little bit about IC codes? And, and um, one of the ones we just did recently, we had to actually get protection in nine different classifications. So <laughs> for those of about, our listeners who don't know, maybe you can just share a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, so, and, and this is really a, a function of the trademark office in the United States and in every other country. So we mentioned that in order to protect a trademark, you actually have to be using it in connection with certain products or services that are being offered to the general public. And, and so when you apply to register your trademark, you need to identify what are the goods and what are the services that you either intend to sell or are already selling under the trademark. And so what the trademark office has done is developed a system to try to streamline that identification of what your goods and services are, and they've done it by creating 45 classes of different goods and services. So one class might be all clothing products. Another class is going to be electronic components. Um, another class would be business consulting services, and they're all broken down like that. So when you are identifying your goods and services in your trademark application, you have to identify which class they fall within. So that also helps other people in searching because if they are trying to select a mark to use in connection with a computer game, that's going to be class nine. So when they search for trademarks, they can really focus on trademarks that are registered in class nine and see if there's likely to be any conflict with the mark they want to select. It's also conveniently a method for the trademark office to charge fees. So they charge a fee when you apply for your trademark on a per-class basis. So you're paying, if you're registering in nine different classes, you have to pay nine times the, the individual class fee to file that application. Very convenient of them. Yeah, and, um, and how many uh, IC codes are there? There are 45 currently. There used to be 42 when I started practicing. Yeah. And then the, the service classes, just with the explosion of, you know, cloud-based services and software as a service, they had to break up some of those service classes into more specific classes, and so they added three classes to the system. And this yeah. is an international system, so if you're filing an application in Canada or Europe or elsewhere, 
you're going to be using that same classification system. Good. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to transition real quickly. We're almost out of time, but just to, the, protecting the IP here in the U.S. versus international. So could you just quickly summarize that? Um, I'll try to do it quickly. I mean, yeah, we do live in a global marketplace, um, and and so you need to be thinking about protecting your brands internationally. It, it can be very expensive. You There are some mechanisms for filing where the, the costs are reduced to file in foreign countries, but it, it's a difficult decision for startup companies to make because you can spend a lot of money protecting your mark in foreign countries and if it's going to be a very long time until you actually expand internationally, it probably doesn't make sense to put all your money into that basket. It would probably be better to, you know, develop your products and your business within the United States and then think about foreign expansion. Um, but on the flip side, the the risk of not protecting your mark in foreign countries is that um, pirating is still a very um, popular exercise in other countries where people watch for trademarks that are filed in the U.S., maybe filed by, you know, companies that they think are likely to be successful and likely to expand, and those people will register that trademark in their home country, whether it's China, Russia, Brazil, anywhere, and so that when you then go to expand into that country, sorry, somebody already owns your trademark in that country. Well, thanks for that summary. That's very, very helpful. Uh, we are unfortunately out of time, and so, Diane, thank you for being a guest today on Expert Opinion. Any final thoughts or insights you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, again, just to reiterate, I just encourage people to think about their intellectual property early in the game. Um, you know, be flexible, but do do think about it. Um, think about copyright. Think about um Non-disclosure, when you're just starting up and you're talking to a lot of prospective business partners, um, make sure you have non-disclosure agreements in place so that you can still protect all of that intellectual property. And, yeah, just be, you know, do your, do your research and um, learn how to use your IP properly and how to protect it and how to enforce it. Perfect. And if our guests would like to get a hold of you, how would they best reach you? Probably best they can visit my website at kenobi.com or my email at diane.read at kenobi.com. And Kenobi is K-N-O-B-B-E. That's correct. Thank you. Okay. Well, wonderful. Thanks again, Diane. And uh, that concludes our show for today. This is Ryan Rikus, and you've been listening to another edition of Expert Opinion, a branding business forum where thought leaders share their point of view. If you'd like to listen to past shows or read our blog series, visit brandnewbusiness.com. Until our next show, grow your business by living your brand promise. All right, and we're off. All right, Diane, you did awesome. Yeah, you didn't cough once. I didn't. I didn't (laughs) cough. I'm so proud of myself. (laughs) Didn't 25 minutes go fast? Yeah, it did. I was like, wait a minute, there's still other questions we didn't get to. (laughs) I know, I always list too many questions. um, I think we covered all the important stuff. Yeah, you had some really good storytelling in there as well, so thank you. I thought it was excellent listening to it. Can I I just, I usually don't ask anything here as the engineer, but can I ask or mention one thing and ask you one thing? Mm-hmm. One is, um, have you ever, we just started a show with Octane. I don't know if you've ever given this talk at Octane, but that's certainly a topic that they would, you know, would be right up their alley as they talk about startups and everything here. Yeah, and I, I, I would certainly be willing to do that. A bunch of my partners are very involved in Octane. 
Um, and so they may have gotten several trademark discussions already, but um, I can check with with them and see. Well, I'll pass uh, this info, if you're okay with it, on to uh, the guy who's hosting the show, Austin, and um, maybe he'd maybe be interested like I would, because I think it's a fascinating topic that nobody thinks of until it's too late. Ryan's talked about it at length. It ain't easy coming up with a name and coming up and protecting it here. Yeah, it's not. It's not, and it gets harder. It's just you say so many businesses just popping up overnight, and they if they're using it, then they potentially have rights. Yeah. So you, you can't just rely on the trademark office records. You have to do a lot of Internet searching and see who else is out there. And I throw out one other observation for whatever it's worth. I did have the opportunity to go um, tape some things for Tech Coast Venture Network that meets at your beautiful conference room over there, and I was stunned to find out that all the money you guys put into this um, uh, presentation room, conference room, whatever you want to call it, all the technical stuff in there, there isn't any way other than an old-fashioned DVD to record any of those conferences or meetups. There, I went to plug in because I was going to broadcast it live, and we went through the whole wall and opened it up, and it's all hardwired. And they said, well, no, they never thought of recording any of this stuff. All those events that take place over there, I guess you can do it on an old-fashioned CD or whatever, but other than that, there's no way just to plug in and record what's going on there. With all the techie lawyers that are in this yeah. room. Can you believe all the techie lawyers? I was stunned. I thought, and you're not alone. I've been to a couple other big law firms, and they they get these giant conference rooms, and they build this stuff, but they hardwire it so nobody will mess with it, and that means there's no output. There's no way to capture that stuff or record any of those great things that are going on in your conference room all the time there. Oh, my gosh. I just throw that out for whatever I thought, well, I I thought somebody should know. A couple people. Yeah. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate it. All, right. All right. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Ryan. Thank okay. you, Diane. I'd like to follow up with you. I have a few other questions um, another time. So I'll, I'll shoot you an email. We'll, we'll set up a time to talk. Okay, great. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right, guys. See you later. Bye. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. All right. We'll see you later. I know. It's time for branding business. 